This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. The left's new war on the Constitution threatens the nation. Many people are surprised to hear that the Constitution of the United States is the second oldest written constitution in the world, and that the oldest is that of the state of Massachusetts. Others are astonished to find out that the most often cited part of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, was not included in the original document. These first ten amendments were added two years after the Constitution took effect in 1789. Another aspect of the Constitution is that it does not say that the Supreme Court decides what laws and acts are constitutional. The Court assumed that power in 1803. However, the status was so unsure that the Court did not declare another law unconstitutional until over 50 years later. So the document has always been a bit fragile. Each generation has molded it to fit the spirit of the age. The common conception of the Constitution is under attack again. Mr. John Horvat examines the attack in his essay, The Left's New War on the Constitution Threatens the Nation. For decades, the American Constitution has been both an obstacle and an aid to those who promote the liberal agenda. True to its relativist ethos, today's left has no particular attachment to the Constitution. When the document can be interpreted to the left's advantage, its activists are enthusiastic defenders of constitutional rights. When the right derives too many benefits, the left has no problem calling for the Constitution's demise. Indeed, Harvard professor Ryan D. Dorfler and Yale Samuel Moyne recently wrote the op-ed The Constitution is Broken and Should Not Be Reclaimed in the New York Times. The two guest editorialists from two of the most prestigious law schools in the country say it is time to move on to more so-called democratic processes without the burden of constitutionalism. The American Constitution is understandably an obstacle to the left today. Modern constitutions were set up worldwide to thwart the efforts of ambitious political leaders and parties who might use the law to their advantage. Constitutions enumerate certain rights and legal principles that are considered sacred and beyond the reach of those who might subvert an established and therefore conservative order. The American Constitution is the supreme law of the land. It is a higher law on which all other law is based. Thus, the document is an obstacle against a left seeking abrupt radical changes because it is hard to amend and provides continuity by insisting that it be interpreted in accordance with past decisions. Modern constitutions can also help promote liberal changes by favoring class struggle and other Marxist narratives. Liberal judges can always be found to interpret the Constitution to justify just about anything. Legal scholars have long found new so-called rights in the shadows, penumbras, and nuances of the Constitution. This discovery happened, for example, in the case of abortion and same-sex pseudo-marriage. With one fell swoop, Activist judges legislating from the bench can impose their will upon a populist and turn their liberal opinions into, quote, settled law, unquote. While the Constitution is a higher law, it is not the higher law. 
It was formulated by men with a fallen nature. They can err and deviate law from its purpose. Pre-modern law held natural law as the unchangeable standard upon which all law was based. It consisted of objective and God-given notions of good and evil, valid for all times and peoples. Thus, the American Constitution can be manipulated since it claims no higher authority than its human legislators and judges. It is only as stable as the human element over which it governs. It does not have the fixed moral foundation based on natural law so needed in these modern times. The left has now declared war on the Constitution because the system is too cumbersome. One reason the professors give for this shift is because leftists have lost the battle to control the Constitution. Conservatives have outmaneuvered them, and the authors conclude it is better to withdraw. Indeed, John Stuart Mill, 1806-1873, was the first to label conservatives as the stupid party. The sophisticated left has always acted as if the designation was true. However, the leftist professors now admit that conservatives have run circles around the left, remaking, quote, constitutional law by brainstorming ideas, creating networks of potential judges, and taking over the judicial establishment by following the rules, unquote. In a rare acknowledgment of defeat, Liberals admit, quote, the consolidation of right-wing control of constitutional law, unquote, despite the overwhelming liberal domination of the media, academia, and the political establishment. In this case, the stupid party might now be called the smart party, or perhaps better, the outsmart party. This sudden opposition to the Constitution reflects how much the left has changed. For a long time, the left was willing to operate inside a constitutional framework. Now it has reached a point of anarchical development that it can no longer follow the rules. This is not because the framework is unwieldy, but because it is a framework that imposes rules, continuity, and restrictions. Revolutions are easier without rules. Rather than dispute the rules, it is better to be rid of the framework. Thus, the professors clearly state, quote, The real need is not to reclaim the Constitution, as many would have it, but instead to reclaim America from constitutionalism, unquote. In other words, there should be no sacred legal rights and principles beyond the reach of parties and citizens. The best way to dispose of the Constitution is to declare it undemocratic and inadequate for the times. Denounce the document as hardwired to favor so-called reactionaries. It draws too much emphasis on due process and equal protection to the detriment of redistributive change or even environmental justice. The professor's manifesto declares this uncoupling from the Constitution might be done constitutionally and without great fanfare. 
It would consist of walking away from constitutional restraints of the supreme law of the land. Legislators would be encouraged to break legal precedents of the ages and replace them with the, quote, ordinary expressions of the popular will, unquote. No need to consult the past. They claim it would be far better if liberal legislators could simply make a case for abortion and labor rights on their own merits without having to bother with the Constitution, unquote. By making law without regard for a higher law, the guardrails can be taken off the track, and politicians, in their infinite wisdom, will be free to create laws advocating whatever they deem appropriate. This process would, quote, do politics through ordinary statute rather than staging constant wars over who controls the heavy weaponry of constitutional law from the past. Thus, the designation between higher law and everyday politics effectively disappears. Unquote. The message is clear. The rule of law no longer matters. True to the left's egalitarian metaphysics, all structures defending any distinctions, like higher law, must be overturned. All institutions must evolve to reflect ever more radical forms of class struggle and social equality. The professors desire, quote, the constant reinvention of our society under our own power, without the illusion that the past stands in the way, unquote. Tearing down the structures of the past has always been the tactic of revolutionaries. In this case, the dictatorship of the new proletariats of gender, identity, and climate change is appearing on the horizon. It is demanding that all obstacles be removed in the name of presumed democracy. This must not be allowed to happen. The war on the Constitution must be denounced for what it is— an important step on the path to a new tyranny. Another problem faced by the left is the difficulty of the problems that face them. Most think that lingering issues can be solved by instituting rules that have origins in the college dormitory rooms. Almost all presidential candidates fall for these assumptions. During the campaign, they make impassionate speeches designed to convince voters that they have the answers. Then when they are elected, these so-called answers fail miserably. However, these would-be leaders can't admit that they were wrong. So in all too many cases, the officials try to ignore the problems that they helped cause. Unfortunately, unsolved problems have a way of cropping up again, often at inconvenient times. Mr. Horvat looks at this situation in his essay, America Faces Problems That Refuse to Be Left Behind. The philosopher George Santayana 1863 to 1852, once observed that we Americans don't solve problems, we leave them behind. If there's an idea we don't like, we don't bother refuting it, but simply talk about something else, and the original idea dies from neglect. We leave the problems that bother us in the past rather than confront them directly. 
When everything seemed to be going well in our prosperous past, there might have been some truth to his observations. However, this walk-away strategy is not working anymore. The difficulties that once languished from neglect now refuse to be left behind despite all contrary efforts. Thus, the problems that won't go away are now causing anxiety in countless Americans. We are tired of so many catastrophes that have fallen upon our heads simultaneously. COVID, inflation, crime, civil strife, war, and increasingly angry and strident political divides. Everything seems to be falling apart. We want an easy way out so we can get on with our lives. Indeed, Santiana's old manner of solving problems by walking away dominated 20th century America. People used to believe that they could smother any significant problem with enough money, entertainment, and optimism. They dealt with personal tragedies by moving on to the next marriage, house, or job. Our culture supported a delusional formula for happiness, fleeing from problems, having fun, and hoping for the best. Like a good Hollywood movie, everything would turn out well. That formula never worked well, since it never solved problems, but only hid them. Following it today is proving disastrous, as we employ yesterday's methods of neglect to address today's troubles that demand urgent attention. Thus, the more we flee from our urgent problems, the more they come charging back. They refuse to go away. We cannot find closure on anything, as problems seem to linger forever. Thus, Americans are asking what happened and how did we get here? They long for the simplicity of past times, considered idyllic in their memories. They want to return to the days when they could walk away from problems. They fail to understand that this flight mentality brought us to where we are today. They forget that no one entirely escapes suffering, even when walking away. Three things changed over the years that now prevent us from walking away. These factors have increased our anxiety over the future. The first major change is the scope of our problems that tend to intensify and multiply as time passes. The difficulties were smaller and simpler in the early days of Santiana's observation. They were still serious and reflected a society in decadence, However, society's residual strengths made it easier to flee from them. As society decayed, however, each successive wave of declining morality complicated and amplified the problems. For example, the sexual revolution of the 60s gave rise to the abortion mentality of the 70s and onward. Divorce and contraception soon made broken families the norm for all society. Today's LGBTQ plus revolution now imposes itself upon all society despite attempts to escape its reach. Thus, 
Problems have complicated exponentially to the point that we can no longer wish them away. They have affected fundamental institutions like the family and community. They have penetrated every aspect of our lives. The second reason we can no longer flee from our problems is that the social structures that once kept difficulties somewhat under control have broken down. Our everything-goes culture overwhelmed our best line of defense against misfortune. Major problems and tragedies were more easily hidden or absorbed by social structures and institutions in the past. Social customs and traditions provided frameworks that helped mitigate the damage caused by these problems. Vast social safety nets also contain the elements to resolve many problems people refuse to confront. Everything becomes more complicated and unsolvable without institutions, like the family and intermediary groups. Above all, the crisis inside the church has created moral confusion that increases the impossibility of escape from difficulties that loom ever larger. Without the essential guardianship of social structures, society falls apart. Problems accumulate and refuse to go away. A third factor enters into the equation that explains our plight. It is a fundamental misunderstanding of the role of suffering in our lives. We have the erroneous idea that a world without suffering is possible. Our Hollywood culture teaches us from birth that suffering is to be avoided at all costs. We are encouraged to create a material paradise around ourselves where we can enjoy every legitimate and illegitimate pleasure. Self-interest is the norm in our society. The pursuit of happiness is our false god. Everything is oriented toward maximizing pleasure. When problems threaten this arrangement, as they always do, we are encouraged to walk away from them. Moreover, our culture stigmatizes anything that might cause suffering, resentment, or tragedy. Many label suffering as an injustice that should not happen to them. They feel entitled to remedies, settlements, and benefits that they erroneously believe will compensate them for and erase their suffering. This walk-away-from-suffering mindset is everywhere. If a marriage does not work out, no-fault divorce makes another possible. If an unborn child causes inconvenience, a chemical or surgical abortion is provided as a solution. When social structures break down, people demand government programs to aid them. In our Facebook world, everyone must at least pretend that they are enjoying life as if they had walked away, even if they are internally devastated. What has changed now is the impossibility of walking away from everything. As the world decays and problems mount, people experience the suffering of frantically avoiding all suffering. Our present crisis reflects a culmination of enormous problems that, far from going away, 
are only accumulating. This is what everyone is sensing right now. Either we change our wrong perspective on denying suffering, or we will undoubtedly be overwhelmed by the reality of life's tragedies. A true vision of suffering acknowledges that fallen humanity will never be free from misfortune, sorrow, and toil. Tragedy will always visit us and bring great suffering and grief. The best way to face this suffering is by embracing it, not walking away from it. This approach requires seriousness, the arduous task of seeing things as they truly are, then taking them to their final consequences. It means accepting trials that come our way to improve ourselves and work out our sanctification. Those who adopt this demanding way of life are rewarded with the enormous satisfaction of a duty well done and the consolation of a clean conscience. A society imbued with this acceptance of suffering is brimming with those who sacrifice for others. Their generosity creates a culture of virtue, charm, and charity. Indeed, the Christian must imitate Christ's way of the cross. When we unite our suffering with Christ's passion, our sacrifices can be redemptive, benefiting ourselves and others. The suffering is fruitful. It serves to transform rather than embitter us when joyfully done out of love for Christ. The present crisis has reached the point that embracing the cross is the only way out. We cannot walk away anymore and get on with our lives. Santiana's formula never really worked since we must all suffer in this valley of tears. Our problems were never solved, they only accumulated. The American system is breaking down, forcing us to confront the problems that refuse to be left behind. We can handle this crisis. All it takes is a change in perspective, embracing Christ's cross. Of course, the problems that face the United States don't all come from the left. Conservatives are split as well. Too many of them cannot answer the simple question, what are you trying to conserve? The writer Yoram Hazoni tries to deal with that question in his book, Conservatism, A Rediscovery. Mr. Horvat takes a critical look at this book in his review. Rediscovering conservatism means returning to Christian tradition, not nationalism. Yoram Hazoni's 2022 book, Conservatism, A Rediscovery, comes at a time when the conservative movement is soul-searching and questioning. Conservatives are asking what is to be conserved. They seek to know what they are fighting for, not who they are fighting against. As liberalism decays, many, like the author, dispute with those who would equate conservatism with classical liberalism. There has to be something more. Adding to the drama is a dearth of new ideas, as progressives take the worn-out program to brutal and radical consequences. Conservatives look to the past to see if this something more might be 
Rediscovered. The book is about this rediscovery. Dr. Hazoni claims that the solution is a return to America's traditions. However, it must be the right tradition. The search is complicated by a history divided into two currents since the Revolutionary War and the founding. Readers are advised to choose correctly. The first current consists of those who follow the Enlightenment and adopt its rationalistic frameworks. These theorists confide in abstract reasonings that get people into trouble. They find universal principles detached from reality and impose them on the nation. The bloody French Revolution is the most blatant example of this speculative school. The Jeffersonian wing of the founders also tended to adopt this ideology. Liberal philosophers have validated it with their works over time. Finally, today's dominant progressives take this abstract idealism to new extremes with gender and critical race theories. Dr. Hazoni favors the other current, which he terms the Anglo-American tradition. Its followers believe in developing laws and customs based on a historical, empirical method of trial and error over generations. They base themselves upon common law and time-tested institutions linked to intermediary groups like the family, community, and parish. The Federalists of Alexander Hamilton and John Adams belong to this current, enshrining many of its principles into the Constitution. This is the Burkean school that does not trust the faulty human reason of the enlightened ones to govern. This is the Burkean school that does not trust the faulty human reason of the enlightenment ones to govern. Instead, it prefers the security and misty past of little platoons like clans and family structures. Two opposing forces, ideology and anti-ideology, are now at play. The message of conservatism, Hazoni states, is that America must rediscover the Anglo-American tradition that the revolution of the 60s has long eclipsed. Of course, there is much to like in his evaluation of this tradition. Many important concepts that must be restored are mentioned here. Hierarchy, loyalty, honor, family, community, and religion are but a few. His principal thesis is that individuals are attached to families, clans, and nations that helped form them. These refreshing concepts need to be put back on the table of conservatism. They must be discussed if postmodern catastrophe is to be averted. However, some more fundamental issues must be first resolved before entering the fray. Two major problems with the author's discussion of the national conservative future are cause for concern and must be addressed. The first problem involves the difficulty in arriving at certainties found in the current of historical empiricism. 
Dr. Hazoni claims that conservatives must not confide in, quote, the inherent weakness of individual judgment, unquote, and must instead have recourse to the wisdom of forebearers and the traditions of the past. He favors slow, inductive reasoning over quick, deductive conclusions. It is better that families, clans, and nations come upon the truth through their experience of it. There is nothing wrong with veneration for national tradition or using it to arrive at conclusions. However, it cannot lead to an over-suspiciousness about all universal principles and an over-reliance on tradition. The possibility of error should not overrule the construction of abstract reasoning about the nature of things. Not everything must be hidden in a misty and mysterious past. Systems without universal principles are limited to experiences, which are also inherently weak in fallen human nature. The truth can quickly degenerate into how nations perceive things over time. Different countries might have legitimate perspectives, but they need to be judged by a higher law, which the author denies. Otherwise, morality is reduced to Adam Smith's moral sentiments that determine behavior based much more upon feelings than principles. Thus, this attachment to historical empiricism leads Dr. Hazoni to reject the long natural law tradition of the West that recognizes a higher law, reflecting divine law, valid for all times and peoples. It holds that all human actions are governed by the general principle that good is to be done and evil is to be avoided. Natural law is part of the Anglo-American legal tradition. It makes no sense to reject it in the name of tradition because it offers universal observations about human nature. Out of fear of the Enlightenment's errors, the author refuses to embrace medieval thought from which sprung marvelous applications that expressed themselves in custom and tradition. Although he is Jewish, his preferred model is the Protestant denominations, where there is no universal doctrine, but only different worship traditions. Hence comes his hostility toward the Catholic Church, displayed in his last book, In Defense of Nationalism. The ironic thing about the book is that it is a highly rational presentation of national conservatism. It systematically lays out its components, making the best use of reason, and overcoming the inherent weakness of human judgment. The author makes universal affirmations about human nature, found in the Anglo-American tradition that the reader is invited to apply to the present circumstances. And that is the problem with the Hassoni solution. There is no rock upon which to build his national model. He will recognize no revelation, higher law, or magisterium that affirms the dogmas and doctrines needed to guide and orient behavior. Without this security, tradition is also vulnerable to fallen human nature's errors, 
as seen in the extreme cases of cannibalism, human sacrifice, infanticide, sati, or other aberrations constituting the tradition of some cultures. The conservative is left wandering in the epistemological wilderness, hoping by trial and error to find the best way out when a roadmap would be very useful. Without some rock foundation, conservatism may be able to rediscover a part of its past, but it will be doomed to embark upon the same post-reformational path that led to the liberalism the author detests. The missing rock foundation is the second problem with Dr. Hazoni's presentation. Modern political writers have a marked tendency to adopt an anything-but-Christendom attitude when proposing solutions. Thus, a proliferation of convoluted schemes could have been avoided by adopting a simpler Christendom approach. The quest to rediscover a solution becomes a fool's errand of circle-squaring because of prejudice against an already known and scorned wheel. Indeed, the Anglo-American tradition stretched back to and was integrated with Christendom. Many leave this detail out. Indeed, The Anglo-American tradition was not exclusively a historical empiricist creation, since Anglo-Saxons have long since stopped worshipping Woden and considering oak trees sacred. Christendom played its role in shaping this tradition with its teachings. In the case of oak trees, universal church principles and St. Boniface's Acts forbade idolatry while introducing a wide range of customs and traditions based on this conclusion. In Christendom, natural law did not suppress but enriched tradition. It kept tradition from following the inherent weakness of human judgment that leads to sin and decadence. Under its guidance, tradition could flower into numerous expressions of national or regional identity. Christendom also provided the dynamism that catapulted the West to develop a splendorous civilization. The religious fervor of a population who sought to love God and neighbor cannot fail to contribute to the common good. The unquantifiable elements of grace and fervor are crucial ingredients that modern political writers do not consider. Christendom created the condition for an organic Christian society with many refreshing elements mentioned in Hazoni's national conservative model. However, it differed in its approach. Organic Christian society united a few universal principles associated with the nature of things and in accordance with the gospel and then allowed enormous freedom in applying them to the needs of the person, family, or society. Inside this framework, organic society is a social order oriented toward the common good that naturally and spontaneously develops. 
The family attains the plentitude of its action and influence as the social cell or fundamental unit of society. Professional, social, and other intermediary groups between the individual and the state freely exercise their activities according to their own forms and rights. The state respects the autonomy of regions and intermediary groups. Giving each the right to organize according to its social and economic structure, character, and traditions. The state, acting within its own supreme orbit, exercises its sovereign power with honor, vigor, and efficiency. The church exercises a hallowing influence upon society by guiding, teaching, and sanctifying. Dr. Hazoni's perspective may agree with many concepts of this organic Christian society, but he does not share its metaphysical foundations. His considerations are not about the nature of things, but that which has held good and beneficial in the past. By insisting upon historical empiricism, truth is never completely knowable for Dr. Hazoni but something human societies pursue over time through their traditions. Likewise, religion and morality are, for him, uncertain, limited, and strongly validated by the wisdom of one's inherited tradition. There is forever uncertainty and skepticism, which encourages people to cling ever more closely to those institutions that provide security. Tradition thus becomes the determiner, not the guardian of truth. The Catholic Church's vision of creation despises neither abstract reasoning nor tradition. It rejoices in both as God-given means to the truth. Fallen nature demands that both be scrutinized lest they fall into error. God gives grace to aid in this quest. The church's magisterium provides security to that which is taught. Thus, the Catholic vision of society balances the universal and particular, the theoretical and practical, and the natural and supernatural. The Church knows how to respect the local, particular, and customary. However, the Church also teaches the truth that attracts all nations. Its moral law confronts pagan customs, past and present. The Church presents that beauty, forever ancient and new, that invites all nations to know, love, and serve God. This balance is especially needed today. National conservatism is too narrow to inspire those searching for solutions. Its perspective proves difficult for postmodern orphans, so far disconnected from traditional and national narratives that reconnection or rediscovery is impossible. They need that something more that has always attracted people and satisfied the deepest yearnings of the human soul. This concludes 
The left's new war on the Constitution threatens the nation. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please remember that we publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. There are two ways to make sure that you don't miss future episodes. The first way is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. As we ask subscribers to give us a five-star rating with the service through which they are listening to it, increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book, which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2022 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.